Hello, listeners, and welcome to Building a Better Story World, the podcast for story architects who want to create universes for your film, book, television series, comic, whatever. I'm Steel Tyler Filipek, writer, producer, transmedia guru, and purveyor of the arcane knowledge it requires to make a story that works across multiple platforms. You're here because you're interested in narratives. You may want to influence people, or tell a cool story, or maybe you just want to understand pop culture a bit better. Regardless, all are welcome. Last time, we covered protagonists, the heroes, for lack of a better term, of your stories. If you've been following along since week one, you'll remember that these characters are the first element of a five-part structure that all stories require. To recap, those parts are... A protagonist, the main character of your story. A need, something that the character needs to fulfill on their journey. An obstacle, preventing them from getting that need a choice your character makes to overcome that obstacle, and a resolution, whether they succeed, fail, get a bit of both, or neither. We used an omnipresent figure from pop culture to highlight the protagonist. Expecto Patronum! And then helped you craft such a figure on your own so that you wound up with an emblematic figure who had a non-relatable strength that reflects an aspirational world a relatable flaw that reflects our own world, an outer goal that's seemingly impossible to achieve, an inner goal for which your main character must strive. Those goals are going to be important in today's episode, so make sure you're happy with them. Do they reflect your character in your character's world? Remember, these aren't one-off stories we're telling. Your main character is but a part of a much larger story universe. Their hopes, dreams, and actions are all going to reflect your world, and vice versa. This has to persevere over any number of issues, episodes, sequels, and spin-offs. Their desires don't need to be grand, but the conflict that your character partakes in will need to perpetuate itself. That brings us to our topic of the day, part two of the foundational elements, the need. Your main characters must need things. We have to watch their journey and want them to succeed. The things they desire may be innocuous to the world, but your hero has to think that they're critical. These needs are what drive the characters to take action. That action is why we care about them. Thus, their needs have to be supercharged if your story is to crackle. Your main character can't just give up on them. How do you do this in a story world? Make the needs as universal as possible. It sounds like a paradox. Your character's needs have to be both individual and also big enough for everyone to understand. That's what makes for classic stories, though. Unique but common, personal but profound. Here, there, and everywhere. To find what makes these needs universal, let's categorize them. Maslow's hierarchy of human beings state that people require safety, belonging, esteem, self-actualization, and basic physiological needs like food, water, and the rest. Your characters should have more aspirations in them than that, though. We get enough of basic worries in our own lives. Their needs speak to our hopes and dreams. For starters, then, think about what you want. These needs are usually broken down into four major types. Power, security or control, wealth, and love. All humans want these things in various capacities, at different times of our lives and in different ways. You may not need to be rich, but you probably want to have enough money so that you don't have to worry about where you'll sleep tonight or what you'll eat tomorrow. You may not want to be president, but you may want your elected officials to hold the same values that you do. That your favorite characters need these things, however, allows us to watch them, pin our desires to them, and live vicariously through them. 
To help exemplify this a bit, we're going to be using a pop culture icon from about two decades in the past. Some love it, some hate it. Regardless of your feelings, it was a phenomenon, producing six seasons of television, two feature films, books, live events, one of the first major social media campaigns, and a whole host of extra stuff. Sex and the City was one of HBO's first hits. Starting in 1998 and running through 2004, it was based on the essays of Candace Bushnell, whose life was transformed into fodder for 96 episodes depicting a fictionalized version of the life and times of 90s New York City. The renamed protagonist Carrie Bradshaw, a sex columnist, chronicled the dating lives of herself and her three friends as they explored New York's varied and complex dating scene. Over boozy brunches, shoe shopping marathons, and exclusive cocktail parties, Carrie and her friends each searched for the proverbial Mr. Right while in turn aspiring to have it all. Aspiration is the key word here. Remember how we discussed people wanting to live in your protagonist's world in the last episode? That's Sex in the City's New York. The main characters have many, many, many suitors. They're invited to galas. They live in gigantic apartments. They're the center of attention. And they get to live in the greatest city in the world. Sure, that's more than a little vain, yet it's also why it works. Most of us realize we need to have some self-restraint. Sex in the City could allow a homemaker in Sheboygan, a teenager in Toledo, and a punk in Pittsburgh to live out their id and more hedonistic, capitalistic desires through Carrie, Samantha, Charlotte, and Miranda. The fact is, sometimes it's hard to walk in a single woman's shoes. That's why we need really special ones now and then, to make the walk a little more fun. If you're following along on the interactive part of this podcast, now's the time for your first assignment. Write down your protagonist's two goals, one on each side of a piece of paper. You'll be writing a lot underneath this, so give yourself some room to explore. Each time we bring up a foundational need, I'm going to be asking you to do a specific exercise. Don't worry, let me and Carrie Bradshaw take you away on this journey. We'll begin with the need of love, since that's pretty much what everybody wants, and importantly for this show, it is what Sex in the City is all about, at least on its surface. The physical act of it is even in the title, but there's so much more to it than that. Yes, sex is key to the liberated view of femininity that is showcased in this idealized version of Manhattan, but what other forms of love are there? Can it be that it was all so simple then? Or has time rewritten every line? First of all, there's platonic love. This show could not survive if it was just about Carrie Bradshaw. She has three friends in the form of Samantha Jones, Miranda Hobbs, and Charlotte York. They laugh together, support each other, fight over petty problems, feud over bigger problems, and stand by one another when the going gets tough. I am someone who is looking for love. Real love. Ridiculous, inconvenient, consuming, can't live without each other love. Next, there's romantic love. While Samantha may pursue sex for its own sake, the other three main characters are all on the hunt for Mr. Right. If you're too young to remember a time before Tinder, this was an all-too-common conundrum in New York. Meeting people in random places, having to go on actual dates, discovering more about a person than can be listed on a profile. Heady stuff. Made all the more difficult when career, family, and expectations got in the way. After he left, I cried for a week. 
And then I realized I do have faith. Faith in myself. There's also love of self. Fashion was a big part of the show from day one, with Carrie and her friends exhibiting and setting all sorts of trends. The biggest exemplifier of this was Carrie's walk-in closet filled with so many shoes that she occasionally forgot which ones she owned. I miss New York. Take me home. Finally, there's the love of the city. New York in particular, but also the idea of home. Carrie, Samantha, Charlotte, and Miranda have made a home for themselves, a way of life. So have eight and a half million other people. There is something about the city that transforms every person in it, and yet the city, according to the show, is also transformed by them. We see old New York, new New York, classic restaurants, and blossoming boutiques. The city is just as much a character as any of the women. Don't forget about the dark side of love, though. This is where your villains come in, be they in the form of a rival. Who does she think she is? Big's wife. Oh my God, that was awful. I can't believe there's a person in New York who could hate me that much. Or an ex-lover. When it comes to relationships, how do you know when enough is enough? In Sex and the City, there are numerous loves that fit that bill. And Carrie herself must overcome issues stemming from these bad decisions, including cheating on the supposed love of her life, to her dogged infatuation with a man who is often both emotionally and physically unavailable. Love is a tricky business, and all is fair in it, as they say. This is why, when we are manipulated in love, it hurts more than anything else. When someone betrays a protagonist, audiences hate them. When love goes unrequited, it's heartbreaking. This kind of high tension only works within love dynamics because, unfortunately, we have all experienced loss in some form. It is what makes us human. It's what makes us connect with characters. It's what helps us understand someone else's story. So, now that we have that base covered, we should get back to your story. If you're working along with me, I want you to ask yourself if either of your goals are related to love. If so, write down how, and don't just stop at finding love or giving love or love of country. What is it about love that's fueling your character's goal? Think about all the ways this could be expressed, platonically, physically, and so on. Love is a powerful human emotion, and we all want to experience it as partners, parents, children, friends, and even as patriots. Your character's goal will exemplify that in some way. Pause this program and, when you're done writing, begin again. Okay, so now that we've got that obvious element out of the way, let's go to the next foundational need. Wealth. Sex in the City best exemplifies this through the character of Samantha Jones. See that bulge? Uh, he was wearing a cup. Well, honey, his cup runneth over. Lesser writers would have left Samantha as a sex pot, while a lesser actor than Kim Cattrall would have bought into that stereotype. Many news sources characterize the role as such, but there is more to Samantha than just sexual gratification. I'm going to splash some water on my face and then I'm going home. And I will not be judged by you or society. I will wear whatever and blow whomever I want as long as I can breathe and kneel. Samantha probably has had more sexual partners than the other three characters combined, and even refers to herself as a trisexual, and that she'll try anything once. But she's also an independent businesswoman, a successful PR agent, and a cancer survivor. She's a go-getter and refuses to be cowed or bullied. More than anything, she wants to live life. She wants to experience everything that it has to offer and has no problem tossing away anything or anyone that doesn't meet her exacting standards. Surprisingly, Samantha had found what she was really looking for. She had found a man who made her laugh. 
This is the real nature of wealth, which should really be understood as a wealth of experiences. Wealth is a primary motivator for travel shows. No reservations. For cooking shows. I am Jacques Pépin, and this is Fast Food My Way. For blogs that tell you how to get the best deals at Walt Disney World. Hey, everybody! There are people out there who are not content with enough. They want more than enough, in the form of new tastes, new ideas, and new worlds. Wealth narratives play out in a constant swirl of affirmation, aspiration, and activity. The underlying theme is that you're worth what you want, that all this desire is okay. The best purveyors of wealth narratives show it off, because it's okay to flaunt it if you got it. More importantly, they become leaders of a sort. You want money? This is how you get it. In fact, we'll get there together. No wonder Samantha Jones antagonizes so many people. She's a walking advertisement to show every Puritan that sometimes too much of a good thing can be wonderful. I am really going to have to psych myself up before I try it again. You're going to try it again? Why? Because it's there. Sweetie, it's a penis, not Mount Everest. Well, let me tell you, if it was Mount Everest last night, I could only make it to base camp one. Wowza. That can go too far, of course. Once wealth turns to the dark side, it becomes greed, vanity, and arrogance. If you're using wealth as a way to bully others, your escapades stop being about living life to the fullest and become more about convincing the world that you've made it. You don't need to fake it anymore. And keeping others out of the country club is not the aspirational message that wealth portrays to audiences. It's not exclusive, but inclusive. Sex in the City is at least as much about wealth as it is about love. It flavors love, twists it, and creates conflict. You want to share amazing experiences with those whom you love, but must also give up some if they can't abide by them. Every character will be pulled between finding love and seeking wealth throughout the course of the show, meaning that they will inevitably have to choose to give up some hopes or dreams for others. You can't have it all, it seems, but in return, you get everything you wanted. Maybe some women aren't meant to be tamed. Maybe they need to run free until they find someone just as wild to run with. You'll find this dichotomy in the best franchises. They are not just about one thing. They've got secondary desires running underneath the surface, in the subtext, behind the scenes. This will create tension for your heroes and villains and allow you to make more subtle statements about the human condition than if you were to only be concerned with one topic. Understanding that, and if you're following along, it's time for the next part of your assignment. Think. Do either of your goals have elements of wealth? It's not just about money, remember. It's about the good life. It's about finding everything that existence has to offer. Think also about the darker elements of this need. Is your protagonist a little vain? Are your villains trying to maintain the status quo so that the peasantry can't get enough, let alone stability? Write down some ideas for the dark side of this desire if your story has this element. Don't worry if you've already written about love. Your story may or may not have these elements. We'll be getting into which are most important to you and the world in short order. Remember to hit pause if you need more time, and then we'll continue. Next up, power. Power to influence the world. Power to make decisions. Power to do what you want, when you want, with whom you want. We all wish we had more power because it speaks to our desire for freedom. We all want to be able to live in complete authority of our lives. Otherwise, we're just cogs in a machine. Power is a minor element in Sex in the City, and you'll find that though most big franchises will embrace all core desires, two will be more overt and two will be secondary. 
Life is big enough to encompass all four, and we waffle between them all depending on our mood and circumstance. Yet even a gigantic story universe needs to put a few things in the background. For this part of the equation, we turn to Miranda Hobbs. But let me say, as far as the McKenzie brief, Miranda Hobbs is kicking ass. Where I'm doing a bad job is at home. So, if you'll excuse me, I have work to do. It's no wonder that the writers named this character after a philosopher who argued for a leviathan of a state to keep people in line. Miranda Hobbs is all about influence. She's a Harvard Law grad and a successful practice. She makes sure her co-op board follows her quote-unquote advice. She eventually winds up with Steve, a bartender who happily plays second fiddle to her in faith, career, and much else, though it took quite a bit of time for Miranda to come around to this. Steve and I are drawing up papers to timeshare our kid. She is dismissive of sweetness and passivity, yet also refuses to give in to other type A individuals. And the down payment's coming from your father? No. Just me. That is the natural dynamic of power. People want the freedom to do what they want, to have authority, to exert their will on the world. But when other people do it, it can be a bit of a mess. There need to be rules, both codified and unstated, so that people with power get along. Power corrupts. With great power comes great responsibility. You know the drill. Because sex is not a time to chat. In fact, it's one of the few instances in my overly articulated, exceedingly verbal life where it is perfectly appropriate, if not preferable, to shut up. Power narratives are particularly potent when they speak to characters who are emerging into their own destinies. Children becoming adolescents, adolescents becoming adults, adults becoming whatever it is they will be for the rest of their lives. Such stories embrace concepts of mastery, battle, the right to rule, and other basic ideas of conflict that human beings understand based on our own struggle for survival. You might recognize this aspect in our example from last episode. But power isn't just relegated to stories about teenaged wizards. Pretty much every superhero movie is about power. So too is The King's Speech. Ditto Game of Thrones. See also every prison TV show, from Oz to Orange is the New Black. People want power. People will do anything to get power. People will burn the world to the ground to prevent others from getting power. Power can fuel an entire universe worth of content. It can also destroy the fabric of your story, either intentionally or unintentionally. People don't like characters who have too much power. That's why there are flaws in your protagonist. If you don't mix your strengths with weaknesses or expand on the themes beyond absolute power corrupts absolutely, you'll be left with a story world that is inevitably shortchanged compared to the more nuanced ruminations of power found in such content as Sandman, The Wheel of Time, and House of Cards. Dig deep, ask questions, and don't just give answers. Give your audience a story world where they can safely question their own power over it. No, seriously, do it. If you're working with me on your own property, now is the time to think about power. Is it a quality of your work? Write it down under either goal for your character and showcase it. Don't be simple about it, and don't forget how it will play out in the world and for other characters. Your main character may be superpowered or underpowered, but so will others in your world. Don't just craft your work around this one person. They are one of many individuals out there. Why is this particular desire important to you and important to your work? Ready? If not, pause and start up again when you are. Finally, we have security. You could also think of this as being in control. It's the opposite of power, though it has some elements of it. Whereas power narratives are concerned with freedom or free will, stories about security are about fate and safety. They are two sides of a coin, which is why they are so often found in the same narratives together. 
To have power, to have freedom, you must give up some control. To have control or security, you must give up some freedom and hand the dice to fate. People want liberty, but just as often want someone to make their choices for them. Sex in the City, for its part, showcases the desire of security through the character of Charlotte York. Charlotte, is everything okay? We've been trying, you know, to... whatever. And it's just not... I love him and he's trying, but this is so frustrating. Charlotte comes from New York wealth, has had a privileged upbringing, and for much of her life expected the same of her partner. She's also a hopeless romantic, serial monogamist, and a believer in soulmates. While she was voted prom queen, homecoming queen, and student body president, just as much of this came from family pressure as actual desire. Charlotte wants to be seen as being in control. She wants the security of a partnership that will last forever. She's quite happy with doing things the old-fashioned way, thank you very much. At the same time, this Upper East Side princess longs for more. She allowed an artist to paint a picture of her genitalia. She's dressed in drag. She's had flings with numerous unsuitable lovers. Yet the morning after, Charlotte is back to her old self, suffering from guilt often as a result of the repression in her soul. Indeed, when she does win her knight in shining armor in the form of Dr. Trey McDougall, her perfect life comes crashing down. They decide to do marriage the right way, but later she finds out that Trey suffers from impotence. He's a cardiologist from an old money family that has more than a few skeletons in the closet, and slowly, Charlotte comes to realize that this stodgy world isn't really her home anymore. She wants a family filled with love instead of long-simmering resentment. Something called a fling, it looks like a lot of work. That's what I used to tell Trey about you. <laughs> but when you have feuds that date back to New Amsterdam, it's hard not to get engaged in familial politics, particularly when it comes to adopting a baby from China. Now, I know some things can't be helped, but I must tell you right now, I don't enjoy Mandarin food, and I don't enjoy a Mandarin child. In this, we see that Sex in the City has more than a little disdain for the idea of security. Playing it safe is not this show's idea of a good time. That's not what a New York life is about. If people want security, they should move to the suburbs. New York City is not as dangerous as it was back in the 1980s, but it is still more treacherous than Ypsilanti, Michigan, be it in the form of crime or love. You may find that your story also rejects one of the main desires. That's a good thing. Make sure you take note of it. You're making a hard and fast statement about the world. You may reject the idea of love, or you may think that wealth is a trap, or that power is a fool's game. Or hey, your story may work just fine with the idea of security. The gay rights movement was built on security and established its greatest successes by shifting from a love dynamic, which freaked out the norms, to a security narrative. We're here, we're queer, get used to it. It put the onus of honesty on the other party. If you're secure, if your character's secure, then any problems have to come from the other side. That's it? That's it? You are no longer Mrs. Trey McDougal. Hmm. How do you like that? I like it. Transparency is the key to security in control narratives. Characters have to be open and honest, owning up to their failures, else they will be lumped in with the villains who try to hide behind a wall of fantasy. Let's look to Charlotte as an example. Her problems aren't due to her desires, they're due to her inability to confront her desires. It is only when she gets a divorce and marries Harry Goldenblatt, a short, pudgy Jewish divorce lawyer, that Charlotte finally feels fulfilled. Harry is not her usual kind of guy, but he's also passionate and a believer in all things Charlotte, who converts for him. I think you are the sexiest woman I ever met. <laughs> Harry! <laughs> 
glasses. Like. It makes me crazy when you say my name. Well, then I'm definitely going to stop saying it. And so we come to this final element of desire and how or if it works in your story. What are you saying about security in your world? What about fate? Is free will an illusion? Is the safety of the many more important than the liberty of the few? Don't be too dark. Your audiences will want to inhabit your story world, remember. But definitely be bold. Make sure that your enemies are in conflict with this security. They provide freedom, but at what cost? Or is that freedom just an illusion meant to control your protagonist? Think hard, take a minute, keep writing, and when you're ready, unpause so we can move on. When you're done with that, you'll have one final assignment for this week. I want you to look at all the notes you took, all the desires you listed, and choose two. Focus on those two wants and make sure that one is related to your protagonist's outer goal and the other to the inner goal, or else both desires are related to both goals. This will ensure that your character has conflicting hopes for your story world. It will also ensure that the antagonists you create will be speaking to the desires, repression, and fear in your main character. You can still have other desires in your work, of course, but make sure the world is reflective of it. When you're done, you'll have two primary needs, choosing from love, wealth, power, and security, which will be reflected in your main characters, their antagonists, and the world, while also speaking to the story and themes you're hoping to discover along the way. In the next episode, we're going to put your protagonists through the ringer for having these desires. That's right, we're creating villains, conflict, and treachery for your narrative. In other words, we're creating obstacles that will torture and teach your characters about the world. Until then, keep writing, keep on dreaming, and reach out if you want to share your work with the world. You can find me on Twitter, at Words of Steel, or on my website, steelfilipec.com. That's S-T-E-E-L-E-F-I-L-I-P as in Peter, E-K.com. Check out our old episodes and other content and make sure to subscribe to this and other BronxNet podcasts. Talk soon. This episode of Building a Better Story World was produced and sound recorded by Jen Bagel and Ojoa Newton. It was written, created, and engineered by Steel Tyler Filipek. The theme song, Asia, is by Ilya Marfin via icons8.com. All narrative clips are used under the Fair Use Doctrine, as defined by Title 17 of the United States Code, subsection 107, in that they are used for nonprofit educational work for the purpose of analysis, have been transformed from their initial records by audio engineering for podcasting, and are not substantive of the entire work or function as a direct market substitute. Audio effects are provided by freesound.org under the Creative Commons license. If you feel that this production has unfairly used a piece of audio to which you own the rights, please contact helmstarmedia at gmail.com.